1: Somehow there they were, standing on dry land, the sea between them and Egypt, no longer slaves to Pharaoh, no longer pursued. They sang, they danced, they exhaled. The Israelites were free. For three days they walked into the wilderness, away from that horrible place. But wait, we have no water, no food. What kind of cruel joke is this? You took us from Egypt only to have us die? of thirst and hunger in the wilderness, thus the new reality sets in. Back to the beginning, the primal, the most elemental and foundational of concerns, the first three stories in life in the wilderness are about thirst, hunger, and thirst once again. But these, the Torah assures us, are stories of comfort. I, God, am your healer. Water will come forth from the rocks wells will accompany your travel bread will rain down from the sky and everyone will have what they need but then then they're thirsty again Give us water to drink they said and Moses replied why do you quarrel with me Because we're dying from thirst So Moses cries out to God what should I do before long they'll be stoning me Hit the rock And water will issue from it, and the people will drink. Freeze frame. Here's what we, the reader who returns to this story year after year, already knows. The wilderness years will be filled with tragedy, filled with stories of people who lose faith, who rebel against God and Moses, people who will die in the desert rather than enter the promised land. And Moses our faithful leader, the man who led us out of Egypt, who encountered God unlike any other, he too won't make it. He too will become a victim of these wilderness years, a victim of old patterns, ways of thinking, ways of acting that catch up to him with fateful consequences. In 38 years... Moses will once again be standing in front of a parched people and a rock that's meant to bring forth water, but instead of speaking to it as God commands, he'll hit it twice. And for that tragic mistake, his story will end in the wilderness. When we consider the wilderness years, there's plenty of blame to go around. Moses is certainly flawed in the people. It's one mistake after the next. But today, I need to question how God shows up in this story. I need to do that dangerously beautiful thing, or or is it beautifully dangerous, that Jews know how to do, demand that God be better. So here's what set me down this path. Listen carefully to God's instructions to Moses when commanding him to hit the rock in this week's Parsha. Take the rod with which you struck the Nile and set out, strike the rock and water will issue from it and the people will drink the rod with which you struck the nile something's wrong i flip back 10 chapters to the first plague in egypt the plague of blood remembering it differently than what we just read and the lord said to moses exodus 7:19 say to aaron take your rod And hold out your arm over the waters of Egypt, its rivers, canals, ponds, all its bodies of water, that they may turn to blood. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. He lifted up the rod and struck the water in the Nile, and it turned to blood. He lifted up the rod and struck the Nile. Who is he? From the initial instruction from Moses to Aaron to the use of the singular pronoun, it sure seems like it was Aaron and Aaron's rod that struck the Nile. In a rare occurrence, the commentators basically all agree with each other. Ibn Ezra, Ramban, Rashbam, and Rashi all clarify what might have been ambiguous. Aaron, with his rod, struck the Nile and turned it to blood. And Rashi, quoting the Midrash, tells us why. Moses knows the Nile differently than most. Recall that as a baby, his mother put him in a basket and placed him in the Nile River, a desperate attempt to save a baby who'd been condemned to death by Pharaoh's decree. The Nile could have swept him away. But somehow these waters kept him safe long enough for that fateful moment when Pharaoh's daughter would see the basket, take pity on this child, and ultimately raise him in the palace. And so Rashi teaches... Since the Nile had defended Moses when he was cast into it as a baby, it was not struck by his hand. Neither in the plague of blood nor in that of frogs, it was struck by Aaron instead. This is an extraordinary Midrash. The complexity of Moses' character is unfolding before our eyes. You see, Moses is a man with a violent streak. A man familiar with anger and the use of force. A man who struggles with restraint. He slays the Egyptian taskmaster. He shatters the tablets upon seeing the people worshiping the golden calf. He calls for bloody revenge against the Midianites. He often seems unable to control the rage within, which ultimately leads him astray in his relationship with the people, which ultimately prevents him from entering the land, which all makes this moment at the Nile so remarkable. Put down your rod, Moses. Don't strike the water. If I ask you to turn the water that saved you into blood that will lead to so much death, I will have hardened your heart as well. I will have told you that there are no limits to the force you wield, to the anger you express. I will have told you that there's no need for restraint. No careful consideration of when to strike and when to speak. Put down your rod, Moses. He didn't strike the Nile, God. So why would you tell him to take the rod with which he struck the Nile and strike the rock? Why revise the history? Why revise? replace his own memory of that moment of grace with something more destructive and less refined? Why, at this fateful moment, at the very beginning of the journey through the wilderness, would you strip him of a learning, of an identity that could have guided him differently in the days ahead? I don't know the answer to these questions. Actually, they haunt me leaving behind the trail of what-ifs that tempt us to imagine the alternate history had different words been chosen. Had Moses been reminded at the rock that while this moment calls for his use of the rod to bring forth water, using the rod always requires discernment. Remember, you didn't use your rod at the Nile. But history is conflated, narrative rewritten, and Moses loses access to this insight, and something inside hardens. 38 years later, God asks him to take his rod in hand and order the rock to produce water. He's been here before. The place, Merivah, even has the same name as the first encounter with the rock, but he isn't able to hear what's different this time. He knows what the rod can do, has forgotten that it isn't always the only option. Exhausted, And bereaved and fed up when God asked him to speak to the rock, he hid it instead. In this week's Parsha, at the rock, when Moses is learning how to lead the people in a new chapter of their story, I believe that God failed Moses. That doesn't mean that Moses doesn't also hold accountability for the choices he made in the wilderness years, but I can't completely let God off the hook either. God's misrepresentation of what happened at the Nile recasts Moses to his detriment. God strips Moses of the memory of acting with restraint, of making a nuanced and sensitive decision born from his humanity. God erases Moses' experience of having discerned when to step back from being the agent of danger, of anger and destruction. God ought to have reminded Moses of this profound learning, but instead flattened the story. I expect God to help us be bigger, not smaller, to see within us the wisdom we've accrued and help us return to that wisdom when it's at risk of being lost, to see within us the capacity for growth and higher aspirations and to help us get there, especially When we're perilously drifting. Like Moses does for God. When God comes dangerously close to wiping out the people following the golden calf, Moses turns to God and says, Adonai, Adonai, El Rachum Vichanum, this isn't who you are. You are compassionate and gracious, Erech Apayim, slow to anger. Re'av chesed ve'emet, abounding in kindness and faithfulness. Moses reminds God that God is and ought to be bigger than this moment of destructive anger. And of course, this isn't just about God or theology or the dynamics of our sacred text. It's about remembering who we are before we lose it all. It's about catching each other before the heart can harden, before the heart can believe, that'll always be me, that'll always be us. It's about finding ways to resist the pretense of inevitability because choosing from a place of possibility will always be our greatest power. Somewhere inside each of us is the knowledge of who we are, when we're living with truth and clarity as our compass, when we're tender and soft and discerning, and our field of vision is wide and vivid, can you find it? Can you find it? Sometimes it's really hard. And I don't know where to look. But a friend, a partner, child, a parent, they'll know they'll see you how you need to be seen. They'll make you bigger, not smaller. They'll remind you of who you are and who you can be. Let's remind each other of who we are and who we can be. Shabbat Shalom.